0: I China what they even saying <laughs> what is this Chinese rap music like they're just
1: saying Ching my chance new go watch met in China we play ping pong po in China hello and welcome to China econ talk I'm your host Jordan Schneider accommodation collective balancing comprehensive pressure regime chains. No, these are not treatment strategies for my torn oblique, but rather the menu of options on the table for the U.S. responding to rising China. To walk us through the grand strategic choices at play for America in the second edition of China Econ Talk's Future of U.S.-China Relations series, we have here today Hal Brands, professor at CICE and Bloomberg Views columnist, as well as Zach Cooper, research fellow at AEI. Alongside their scholarly work, both guests have had stints at the Department of Defense on their resumes. Zach and Hal, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. So first, a question for both of you. Uh, what did you respectively learn from your time going from academia into into government service? And any broader advice uh, for getting more academics focused on policy-relevant questions and, and in and out of government to have the same types of uh, uh, viewpoints and impact that you two were able to?
2: So the thing that I learned is just that I picked up a whole bunch of knowledge on subjects that I hadn't studied in a great deal of depth before. Uh, so I had worked on U.S. foreign policy in a big picture sense, but I hadn't spent a great deal of time dealing with counter-ISIS issues or U.S. strategy toward Russia or U.S. strategy toward China or other issues that I spent uh, a significant amount of my effort working on while in government. And so when I came out of government, I just had a great, uh, a significantly greater degree of depth on those issues than I had before and a lot more interest. And that's driven my research uh, over the past couple of years.
0: And this is Zach. I would actually say I went the opposite direction. I was in government for a few years and then went back to the academy. And I think uh, what I found surprising in government was that there were some people with deep, deep expertise on both the government side and the academic side. But often when you came back to the academy, that wasn't the case, right? That's not the typical path for a college professor. Uh, You go through your academic training Uh, You go through pre-docs and post-docs, and you finally get your teaching position, but it's fairly rare to actually have real government experience in the academy, and so I often felt a little bit disconnected from that government experience when I went back to school. But one of the great things about being in Washington is that there are so many people, especially in terms of academics and policymakers, who have deep experience in both worlds and who are able to combine them. So that's one of the real virtues of the community here, not just in think tanks, but also in the academy and in the policymaking world.
1: So what would you say to the young Ph.D. considering a stint in an agency but also worried about their tenure track potential? I think a lot of it,
2: and this is Hal speaking, comes down to sequencing. Where you know, in, in some ways, the the way that Zach did it is the way that I would recommend it to people who want to have a career in government before they go into academia. Because if you do your PhD and then you get off the academic track to go into government, it can be harder to come back to the academic route after that. Whereas Zach sort of went off and, and did some government work and then went and got his PhD. Uh, and I think a variety of options are open at at that point it 's generally easier to establish establish yourself in academia first, then go into government and have the option to come back to academia than than doing the other way around
0: and The only thing I would add is that people need to remind themselves that there are jobs other than teaching that are worthwhile and you know when you 're spending a lot of time around college professors it 's easy to forget that that 's the case. But people can put together careers that are interesting and worthwhile that don't necessarily involve teaching as the core, right? You know, I teach at a couple of places on the side, and I enjoy that amount of teaching, but it's not my central day-to-day activity. It's easy in a Ph.D. program to forget that there are options other than teaching and that those options are not actual failure. And Some people are good at reminding students about that. But I think often as a student, it's easy to think it's tenure track or bust. And that's not really the right answer in my book.
2: Yeah, the socialization pressures in most academic PhD programs rival those in most communist parties uh, around the world. (laughs) And so uh, maintaining an open mind with respect to what constitutes a rewarding career and understanding that... You don't have to become a carbon copy of your academic mentor, I think is very important in the way that Zach points out.
1: Back to China. Uh, Thanks for the transition, Hal. So responsible stakeholder to where we are today. Briefly, you two, what was the prior U.S. consensus around China and um, a
0: a quick sense of the assumptions that undergirded it? Well, you'll get people that argue that there was no consensus about China, especially now as people uh, try and, I think, rethink what they believed the last 20 or 30 years. Um, But my sense is that the best statement of the view uh, among many Washington experts is the Bob Zellick argument that we wanted China to be a responsible stakeholder. We wanted it to buy into the system. Uh, I think this uh, came a lot with a, with a great deal of hubris, right? We hoped to change not just what China did internationally, but also we hoped to change China domestically. We don't talk a lot about that, but we wanted China to become more open and more democratic. And uh, I think that has been the, the view from basically the 90s onward, my sense is that that lasted up until maybe starting in 2012 2013 when that consensus started to break down in a serious way
2: the the only thing i'd add to that is that there was uh, creeping levels of ambition in american statecraft really from the time we did the opening to china in the 1970s for until about 40 years after that and so if you go back and look at you know what henry kissinger and richard nixon were saying about China in the mid-1970s, they were looking at it in a pretty cold-blooded fashion. And the idea that was that we're going to use China and China is going to use us to balance the Soviet Union now. But there may come a time when we will have to balance against China because these are still people who view the world in a fundamentally different way than than we do. And I think that piece of it gradually got lost over the course of the subsequent decades as we came to have higher hopes that China would either democratize or at the very least it would come to support a system that the United States had created and led.
1: There are two big focal points, I guess, from a historical perspective when we're speaking about this, um, you know, uh, democratization thesis. First, there's uh, the fall of the Soviet Union, right? So this whole balancing thing is not something that's in front and center in uh, U.S. mines. I mean, we did a show earlier about uh, the the 1980s and America was selling all these planes and, you know, there was all this big push to kind of like bring China up because uh, we wanted to help them assume a, a, a different level of development vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. But also at the same time, you know, you have a Tiananmen, of course, and that sort of gets people rethinking, but like only really for six months or so. Um, and, then, and then we're kind of back on track with maybe things will like work out over a longer term horizon when it comes to, uh, uh, to political liberalization.
0: Yeah, I've, I've long believed that there's a really interesting story to tell about why after Tiananmen, the U.S. didn't fundamentally change its approach. Uh, not Not just in terms of human rights issues, but, you know, when the Soviet Union falls... You might have expected the U.S. to look and try and figure out where the next potential competitors would be and to reframe American defense strategy in a fairly thorough way. And you don't see... anything like what you would have imagined over the last 30 years, it's really just in, in the last couple of years that you've seen a real reframing of U.S. priorities. And I think there's a good story that somebody should write, a good history, um, Hal's probably finishing a book on this right now, uh, <laughs> that, that would explain exactly why it was that we were slow, so slow to shift
2: so it's, it's interesting because uh, I actually wrote a piece about this about a year ago. Um, and, and what I argued there is that there were a handful of reasons why we didn't make this shift as early as most international relations realists would, would predict you, you would. And some of them are idiosyncratic. Some of them just have to do with timing. So I think if Tiananmen Square had happened 18 months later or two years later, there would have been a different U.S. response because the Bush administration... <laughs> in May and June 1989, was still in a Cold War mindset and was still worried about China tying back up with the Soviet Union in in some meaningful way, given that Gorbachev had just gone to Beijing to try to repair that relationship after about 20 years of estrangement. And then other pieces of it have to do with uh, greed and sort of the non-pejorative sense of the term, the, the sense that there was a lot of money to be made in China. Part of it has to do with the hubris that Zach talked about earlier. Uh, This was a time when authoritarian regimes were dropping like flies and China was acquiring a lot of the characteristics that social scientists uh, associate with democratization. You were getting a richer population, more and more people moving into the middle class. It seemed reasonable to assume that you get pressures for liberalization there uh, in the way that you had in, in other countries that reached that transition zone. And so it is actually a really interesting story because it's not a case where American policymakers made a dumb bet that was obviously wrong at the time and is obviously wrong now. They made a bet and the bet wasn't necessarily based on silly ideas or naivete. We look back and we say that the bet didn't pay off, but that doesn't mean it was foolish to have tried in the first place. It may have been foolish to continue it for as long as as we did. But in the early 1990s, it's hard for me to see how we would have done Anything um, too different from what we've done, just just given all of the circumstances
1: in play. There's there's one line that strikes me from the George H W Bush, I think a world transformed his um uh, his his memoir where he writes that after Tiananmen, uh, Deng called me a lao Yo, like an old friend of China. I felt the phrase was not just usual flattery, but a recognition that I un- understood the importance of the U S China relationship and the need to keep it on track. And you know, on the one hand, you can look at that the way Hal does as this sort of Uh, you know, uh, a timing thing and, and, you know, Gorbachev was still around and they're worried about balance of power stuff but there's also a way to see that as just him getting played which is something that uh, has happened pretty frequently with, um, uh, not just Americans, but kind of foreigners in general, trying to, um, uh, you know, understand and, and get their hands uh, dirty with uh, domestic Chinese politics, which is another potential thesis of, of, of why, at least in that time period, it, um, uh, it played out the way he did. You know, George W. Bush, H.W., uh, of course, you know, had spent a fair amount of time in China, uh, was the ambassador for a number of years, I guess not ambassador, like one level lower, and, uh, you know, maybe had had kind of, calculated the personal relationships poorly.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that we were slow to pick up on from the early 1990s onward was that for the past 30 years, the Chinese have always seen us as their primary competitor and their primary adversary even. And and they were, you know, we look at the U.S. response to Tiananmen and we say, boy, that was kind of tepid given all the people that they killed. The Chinese looked at the U.S. and Western response to Tiananmen and said that the United States is trying to bring about the downfall of the, the Chinese Communist Party. And so there was always a very strong strain of, of thinking, at least in, in certain parts of the Chinese elite, that the United States wished China ill. And this you know, would have struck us as kind of weird, because this was at a time when the United States was trying to integrate China into the international economy, we were paving the way into the WTO, we were helping China become uh, markedly more prosperous. And I think that that over time sort of the perceptions of the relationship in Beijing and Washington gradually diverge, but now they're actually converging again.
0: I think this is a really important point and something which we don't talk about enough. My sense is that many people in Washington feel that they tried to integrate China into this order and China chose not to join. When I talk to Chinese friends, that is not the perception they have. Their perception is that Washington made some half hearted attempts, but that in large part, Washington um, did not really want China to have a hand in shaping that order. And so uh, it really didn't want a responsible stakeholder. And I, I think this is going to be a real challenge because these narratives that we tell ourselves are so different, it will be very hard to get them back on the same page. And one big question I think. For folks outside of the United States and China, is which one of these narratives do they believe? Do they think the U.S. actually sure. gave China the chance to integrate into the order, or not?
1: Just a, a kind of riff on that. Are either of you up for taking the um, uh, I don't know the moral or strategic calculation of like whether it would have been okay in say you know two thousand four or two thousand five to pull the um. Uh, uh, to pull the plug on this and start a, a harsher attack w- with respect to this PRC. You know, on the one hand, maybe, uh, you know, the power differential was uh, uh, much greater than it was today. But on the other, you know, there have been a lot of uh, Chinese people who uh, have been able to 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 have their lives changed dramatically thanks to the development uh, that's been able to happen over the past 20 years in China, to a large extent because of the, uh, the, the integration that China has been able to make into the global economic system. So on the one hand, I think there's
2: a great deal that the United States, can be proud of in terms of its relationship with China since the end of the Cold War. I mean, the United States had a supporting, but nonetheless, critical role in one of the greatest achievements in poverty relief in human history by helping China become more prosperous and and helping the Chinese regime in a way they wouldn't necessarily admit, pull hundreds of millions of people out of relatively dire poverty. And so that's something to be proud of, and that's not something to regret. It's interesting, though. I think even by the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was a growing sense within the U.S. national security community that China could be the next peer challenger to the United States. And while the United States didn't need to pull the plug on the economic and diplomatic integration aspects of the relationship, it needed to do what's been called better balancing. And it needed to more significantly hedge against the emergence of China as a military challenger in the Western Pacific and potentially beyond. And if you look at the very early stuff from the George W. Bush administration, the way that the Pentagon is thinking about the global environment, uh, the the QDR that was drafted before 9-11 and then was hastily revised after 9-11, it's really all about that. It's really sort of a first draft of the pivot to Asia that would come later on. And there are are two things, of course, that get in the way – of uh, making more of this during the Bush years and really for about, for about a decade after the beginning of the 20th century. The first is just that, you know, we get busy with other things. And so uh, whatever slack there was in the defense budget, whatever plus up we got after 9-11 went, went largely to war fighting in the Middle East and the expansion of US ground forces and other things that really don't do a lot of good in terms of shoring up the balance of power in the Western Pacific. But the other thing is that really, I mean, up until fairly recently, we consistently underestimated the rapidity of China's rise uh, in both an economic and a military sense. And so we always thought that we had more time than we actually did until this became a serious problem. And now that the problem has become impossible to to deny, there's sort of been a sudden awakening in, in D.C.,
0: this this time issue never gets enough attention. You know, I, I think there is a strong argument that um, the main difference among some experts in Washington is on this question of time and who has a window of opportunity right now. I think there are many people within, especially the um, more hawkish side, who think that China is actually breaking, like the system is breaking, the economy is struggling. A tech war is going to severely damage the Chinese economy. It will cause real problems for the Communist Party. Xi Jinping's domestic moves are going to trigger more of a nasty internal response than perhaps he and others have expected, and that actually China is a much weaker player than people give it credit for. You know, I don't know enough to know whether that view is right or not, but it leads you to some very different policy views than if you think that China's growth is going to continue and that the Communist Party is going to have uh, some fairly stable leadership in the years ahead. I think your assessment of that window of opportunity and of the time factor plays a huge part into how you want to react to China today.
1: So it's 2019, and we've clearly entered a new era, one in which the consensus is shifting. But, you know, aside for competition as an end in itself, uh, the Trump administration hasn't Hasn't really seemed to have settled on an overarching direction. So um, you just hinted a little bit of at this, uh, Zach. But why don't you two start here with the framework of the uh, four options you laid out in a in a recent piece? So first off, I mean, you talked about the hawks a little bit, but how did you settle on these
0: four? And were any left on the uh, left on the Trolley Box? That's a good question. I think the easiest two options that we look at are accommodation and regime change because they're kind of the simplest, right? Um, if you think about accommodation, it's, um, it's the obvious uh, dovish answer and regime change is the most hawkish answer you could get. And so um, in, in some senses, they're kind of ideal types. Uh, I think the one thing that they surprisingly have in common is the view that there's urgency in responding to the China challenge. That actually, if you let China continue to grow, that China will become more powerful and too powerful to deal with. And so either you better strike a deal now while the balance of power is still somewhat in our favor, or you better try and change the regime now, but that waiting is not an option. So what's interesting is I actually think that the two most extreme options on either end of the spectrum might have more to do with each other than they do with the two moderate options that we look at.
1: Uh, so, Hal, you recently wrote a book with uh, Charles Edel called The Lessons of Tragedy, uh, and to go on a little tangent here, I think summarizing that book's argument and connecting it back with um, both the accommodation as well as the regime change perspectives might be, might be interesting. So maybe talk a little bit about that book and how it applies uh, in particular to the, to the U.S.-China context.
2: Sure. So uh, the book is, uh, you can think of it as a 50,000-word op-ed about the rise and fall of international order, basically from ancient times to the present, or from Thucydides to Trump, as uh, we've sometimes joked about it. And the basic argument of the book is that the natural arc of human history and international affairs is not towards ever greater progress and democracy and prosperity and all sorts of good stuff. The natural arc of international affairs Uh, often ends or is disrupted by catastrophic crack-ups of the international system, whether you're talking about the Peloponnesian War uh, in the 5th century BC, or the 30 Years War, or the Napoleonic Wars, or the the World Wars of the 20th century. Uh, And in fact, those crack-ups have have often been so um, uh, traumatizing for the people who have experienced them that what we think of as successful international orders tend to take shape in their wake. And so people like the statesmen uh, of the Concert of Europe or the, the American statesmen of the Roosevelt and Truman administrations say, boy, we better not let that, whatever just happened, happen again. And so we're going to create uh, a new international order, a new system of power relationships uh, and rules and norms that, it, that is meant to move us toward a better place. But that over time, though, those, uh, those systems themselves become destabilized in part because uh, people forget what they were erected to prevent in the first place. And the argument to tie this into sort of what we're talking about here, the argument we make is that the U.S. system has been so successful for so long in delivering so much stability and peace and prosperity and democracy that Americans in particular are starting to forget uh, why we do all the things we do in the world in the first place, why we have alliances, why we support free trade, and so on and so forth. And it's happening precisely at the time that we're starting to get sharper challenges to that system with, with China being foremost among them.
1: Yeah. So I imagine if, if Trump hadn't skipped the draft, he may have a bit of a different perspective on, uh, on, on things nowadays. <laughs>
2: It's, it's interesting. It's, it's a generational thing, I think. I mean, it's, you know, how, how many... We, we saw this recently with, um, you know, the 75th anniversary of, of D-Day, where this is really the last anniversary of D-Day at which there'll be any appreciable number of people who were actually there um, who still survive. Uh, you know, we've gotten to the point where the last American president who experienced World War II, or really the Cold War as a formative experience, was George H.W. Bush. And so we've gotten so far from the the events that catalyzed America's global role in the first place that I actually think it's, it's not at all surprising that somebody like Donald Trump really doesn't have a whole lot of understanding or, or historical awareness of why it's so important that the United States does the things it does in the world.
0: I also think there's something to be said for the fact that, you know, if you look back at World War II or even Vietnam, you know, the draft plays a major role in ensuring that as a society, individuals have some understanding of the horrors of war. And uh, so when you go to an all-volunteer force and you have a very concentrated effect, uh, and the risk to you know normal folks on the street who aren't thinking of joining the military seems quite low, right? And it's, it's hard to quantify exactly how big a role that plays. But I think if you're trying to figure out, you know, why don't people feel the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan more directly, I think that's been a huge reason. Okay.
1: So now that we got those two out of the way, let's go on to our Goldilocks options, collective balancing and comprehensive pressure. So maybe start with collective balancing.
0: Yeah. So I, I think the logic on collective balancing is fairly straightforward, which is that, okay, maybe the it's possible that if China continues to grow, it will surpass the United States economically, potentially militarily, potentially politically or technologically as well. But that doesn't mean that everything is lost. In fact, the United States is strong in part, not just because of its domestic power, but because of the fact that it had such a strong role in building the rules and norms of the international order, and many of those will constrain China. And the United States leads uh, the world in terms of its alliances and partnerships. And so, some combination of America's 30 treaty allies and its global network of partners will slowly counterbalance China and over time shape. Chinese decisions, or at least, at the very least, uh, deter China from major acts of revisionism. So I think that's the collective balancing logic. And the the core idea is just, if this is a U.S.-China competition, China may well win. If it's a China competition with the rest of the democratic world, I think it's going to be much more difficult for China to shift that discussion and debate about rules and norms uh, in a rapid way. And and it will encounter far more opposition than one might expect if you just see it in bilateral terms. Uh, so so what do you feel like are the weaknesses with that line of argument? I think there are a couple, and, and you hear them sometimes from the Trump administration. One argument is that allies and partners simply aren't going to stand up. I think the the place that you hear this the most is in responses to China's activities in the South China Sea. I think if I had told you in 2010 that China was going to build seven large military bases in the South China Sea, uh, in the Spratlys, you would have probably, or at least most people would have thought, okay, there's probably going to be some pretty serious opposition to that within ASEAN. And in fact, what you see is, deep, deep divisions within ASEAN, and even some of the claimants like the Philippines and Malaysia being hesitant to speak out now about Chinese activities. Uh, And so I think one argument is simply that as the Chinese keep pushing, they're not actually finding a lot of strong opposition, and therefore you can't rely solely on those allies and partners to stand up and push back against China.
1: So i just spent two years at a master's program in china and china studies and doing it i watched a lot of ITE, but didn't necessarily gain too many hard skills had i only known that at the university of san francisco's new master in applied economics i could have learned something to actually make me super employable you know r sequel machine learning all that good stuff you actually see on job listings in silicon valley and john not necessarily have you watched all of juan Song. so in this program, you can study the economics of platforms, auctions, and business strategy at the same time as you learn the tools of econometrics, experimental design, and machine learning. Plus, for all those non-U.S. students out there, this program is designated STEM, so you can apply for a three-year extension on your student visa and keep working in the U.S. after you graduate. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu jordan. Uh, So the other one that came up to me was that, uh, aside from finding the alleys, collective balancing also uh, would require stronger efforts to delineate acceptable Chinese behavior from unacceptable activity and to inflict harsher penalties on Beijing when lines are crossed. But, you know, this is almost like disciplining a teenager and like, what are you going to do if they say no?
0: Yep. And, And this is one place where I think the Um, the choices that we would have to make in a strategy like this are tough choices, right? It means accepting some risk of substantial escalation if, for example, China attempts to build a military facility at Scarborough Shoal. Um, And I think to date, the U.S. government, not just the Obama administration, but the Trump administration often as well, has preferred to say, Uh, we are going to oppose Chinese, uh, for example, in the South China Sea, we are going to oppose uh, reclamation and construction and militarization in the South China Sea. But we actually haven't done that much to actually stop the Chinese from doing this. And if you were serious about upholding the rules and norms, you'd have to accept serious risk. And that means risk of conflict. And um, I think there may be some American policymakers who are willing to do so. But at least to date, we've been quite unwilling to accept substantial risks of that sort. And we've tried to instead keep our red lines a little fuzzier. And when the red lines have been broken, we often sort of pull back ourselves rather than trying to really enforce those red lines.
1: So comprehensive pressure, which is uh, the, the last one on our list, kind of ends up running into the, um, uh, uh, the same issues you just outlined.
0: I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, the comprehensive pressure strategy in my mind is is to say, uh, look, at the end of the day, if China continues to grow rapidly, it may just not be possible to manage the challenge from China. And therefore, you actually have to act now to slow the growth of Chinese power. I think you see some of this in what the Trump administration is doing. You know, a little bit of the logic of decoupling the economies is to slow Chinese growth. And, I think there are some substantial weaknesses with this strategy, but uh, for those that are really concerned about China but don't want to go all the way towards regime change, this is kind of the option that I think a lot of folks have, have glommed onto. Yeah. But it's
1: also the sort of logic that historically has gotten a lot of people into losing wars. Um, there's a fantastic book called Japan 1941 by Eri Hata, uh, which kind of walks through the internal j- deliberations of, you know, the Japanese generals and the prime minister and the emperor. And basically everyone was saying, you know, our chances are already low and they're only getting worse day to day. So we got to, you know, do a Pearl Harbor as, as soon as we can. And, you know, this has happened a number of times over the course of history and and feeling like you're On the losing side, and your chances are getting lower and lower over time. There's all this human psychology, which is pushing you to act in uh, in potentially very irresponsible ways when that's the mindset you go into looking at something.
0: I think that's right, and you know, I think the other major fault of that strategy is um, if you really believe, as I do, that your allies and partners are at the core of the U.S.-China competition. It may be that your allies and partners just are not on board with that type of strategy, right? That they want the economic growth that they can get from China. They're not willing to sacrifice it. And that at the end of the day, therefore even if you want to take a really tough tack, like, a, you know, a, a comprehensive pressure approach, that they won't be there with you. And you could actually end up fracturing this coalition and having to really go it alone. And I think that's some of what we're starting to see now with the decisions in London on 5G, with the decision in Rome on Belt and Road, that in fact, the US is pushing further and faster than its allies and partners are willing to go. Yeah.
1: That's, that's a really interesting uh, way of framing it because, um, you know, maybe you can do 40 percent of what you want with the Japanese and, and the British and what have you. But if you if you push that to 60 or 70 percent, what you end up doing has way less impact because you don't have the numbers that you would have had with a less potentially aggressive approach.
0: Yeah. And and this is where um, I think you have a really tough uh, question to ask from a policy standpoint and from a political standpoint which is how do you balance pragmatism versus what I would think of as sort of purism uh, in terms of China policy, right? Um, If your goal is to get the biggest coalition possible, actually, you you don't want the 100% solution. You don't want to oppose everything China is doing everywhere. You want to oppose the most concerning activities and the ones that others are also worried about. If you're a purist, then you, I think, want to see pushback against China in every single area where you think they're violating rules and norms. And I think we're seeing this struggle play out both within the Trump administration and a little bit on the beginnings of the Democratic primary debate on where they want to go on China.
1: So, uh, so let's now come to your, um, uh, your answer to this conundrum. I must, I must say I was pretty impressed that you guys set up four straw men only to combine the two middle options into a more middle one. Um, very impressive uh, trick in that regard. Collective pressure.
0: Yeah, usually, uh, usually when people come up with options, they come up with three options and they pick the middle one. Uh, you know, Hal's a really smart guy. So he thought of, you know, we go to four and then combine the two, no one will see it coming. <laughs> um, the funny part is, I, actually, I think Hal, Hal's not here so I can malign him. But um, I think Hal and I are in slightly different places with these strategies. I probably am closer to the collective balancing strategy. And he is closer to the comprehensive pressure strategy. Um, and so because we couldn't agree on one ourselves, where we ended up was combining elements of both. And I think there's actually a really strong logic for doing this. And, and it goes like this. Um, in my view, what we need to do over the long term is make sure that our allies and partners are with us as we try and shape Chinese behavior. And I think if we push too fast now towards a pressure strategy, we're going to lose those allies. So part one of the strategy is uh, use your allies and partners' reactions as sort of a rheostat, as the adjustment that tells you if you're pushing too far too fast. And where you are pushing too far, pull back a bit and keep folks on side as much as you can, while trying to make sure that you're giving China the incentives you want to engage in the type of behavior we'd like to see. Meanwhile, we all need to be aware that those efforts may fail to some degree, and we need to be doing the things to build up our power that will let us deal with a China that could be stronger and have some malign intentions down the road. And so I think you can combine elements of the strategy where, in the near term, you're doing more things that look like collective balancing. In the long term, you may have to go towards a comprehensive pressure strategy, but you can still leave the window open for a different path if the Chinese end up going down that path or, frankly, if China just proves to be unable to manage its economic or political challenges. So before we go into the details of that, it's interesting to think,
1: you know, what an Obama with 80% approval ratings in all these different countries and um, and uh, to the extent that Politicians will gain benefits domestically from being being seen to be working with the U.S. president as opposed to, uh, you know, what we see now with, um, you know, every uh, potential prime minister in the U.K. refusing to meet with Donald Trump uh, and kind of similar things uh, worldwide and how that that makes the sort of possibility space for this uh, collective pressure a lot uh, tighter than it might have been otherwise.
0: I think that's absolutely right. And the way I've been talking about this uh, just recently is, you know, I think allies, they want four things in their alliance partner. They want a powerful ally, because after all, if your ally is weak, then they're not going to be that helpful. They want a principled ally because they need to be able to explain to their public why they're actually working with this country and that this country is going to be reliable in the future. They need a present ally because it's great to have a wonderful, strong partner, but if they're not actually engaged in your region, it doesn't really matter. And finally, they want a predictable ally. And I think part of the challenge with the Trump administration is that on at least a couple of those questions, I think allies look at the Trump administration and they think that the president is... Not matching what they would like to see, right? The president is intentionally unpredictable. In part, it's a strategy he has to deal with adversaries. It doesn't work incredibly well with allies, though. Um, He's questioning the U.S. presence, not just in Asia, but around the world. So there are more questions that allies are asking about that. And of course, he's talking much less about values and principles than his predecessors have. And so in a lot of ways, I think the Trump administration has undermined its ability to build this collective campaign to change Chinese behavior. And I don't think that's likely to change in the next year or two. They are still going to face these constraints, in part because of who the president is and what he believes. So you write that this strategy
1: would seek to build a coalition of allies and partners strong enough to deter or simply hold the line against Chinese revisionism until such a time as the Chinese Communist Party modifies its objectives or loses its grip on power. Um, One of the interesting things you highlighted is this idea of a transparency campaign, which is something that both you two and Melanie Hart, uh, who we had earlier on this podcast, who comes from a left-leaning think tank, uh, AEI, uh, for those not uh, familiar with this stuff, is, is on the conservative side of things. So what's the idea behind this?
0: Yeah, well, I I think first of all, you know, this is one area where actually there's a huge amount of consensus. So, so I do some work with Melanie and with Kelly Magsiman over at the Center for American Progress, and I think on the large portion of issues related to China, we are in just about total agreement. Um, there is not that much of a bipartisan difference on China policy, uh, at, at least at the moment. Uh, that could easily change depending on how 2020 goes. But I think you know one of the issues that a lot of folks in Washington are are concerned about is whether you can make more transparent the activities that China is engaged in, in part because doing that is going to cause a counter-reaction, at least in my view, against the bad behavior. And part of what has happened over the last 10 or 20 years is that actually we've let China get away with a lot of behavior without drawing uh, much attention to it. So, you know, uh, economic behavior, right? Why Why do we still allow Chinese companies that have gained from intellectual property theft to sell those same products back into the United States that they stole the intellectual property from American companies to be able to produce in the first place, right? These are the kinds of things where I think transparency can be hugely important. And so um, I think there are a lot of folks... That are in Washington that think that uh, you know if you can shine a light on some of the behavior that China is engaged in, it will hopefully modify some of the, of Beijing's decision making calculus.
1: So my my crackpot idea for this, and I'm curious what your response is, is doing a like a WikiLeaks on. Chinese senior government officials and the billions of dollars they have. I feel like if there's anything Trump could do to piss off and, and kind of rattle the, the boots in Zhongnan high, that sort of thing, as opposed to, you know, screwing over some uh, businessman and like, you know, Jiangxi province who has a handful of factories making um, T-shirts or whatever like that. That's the real um, uh, the scary underbelly, I think. So how illegal is that?
0: Um, maybe for starters? Well, I mean, I, there's nothing illegal about putting public information out there. I think the question is, what's the goal, right? And, and I worry a little bit that—so um, I think that is, as you said, a hugely coercive effort and could be very effective at changing some behavior in Beijing. Now, the question is, is the goal of doing that to undermine the regime uh, or to undermine a certain leader— Or is it actually to change Chinese behavior? Now, if it's to change Chinese behavior, you might actually not need to actually release the information. You could release the dossier to the Chinese official and say, if you don't make X or Y decision, then we will release this publicly. Um, But I think this is where we need to have a really clear idea of what we're actually trying to do. What's our goal with China? Where are we trying to get the Chinese to go? Uh, because the policies we should follow should flow from that and too often I think we we've somehow ended up in a large China debate where we're not really sure yet what we want why
1: don't you summarize your um,
0: your desired ends yeah I, I, and I think you you uh, quoted it I very accurately in, in my view the end state should be to either change Chinese behavior uh, so that they uh, accept some of the critical rules and norms that we think are important to sustaining security and prosperity both in Asia and globally, or that if China is unwilling to do those things or unable, that we compete effectively by deterring them from taking destabilizing actions until the point at which the Chinese Communist Party changes to actually be willing to follow those rules. So I think that should be the objective.
1: So, so what norms are you are, are you sticking by and which ones are you ready to
0: throw under the table? Yeah, and, and this is uh, this is the important question, right? Because everyone can say that we should do something of that sort, but saying what you're not willing to stand up for anymore is the tough part. Um, so look, I, I think uh, if China wants to go build infrastructure globally and if they're willing to make sure that it follows environmental standards and that the debt... Uh, that the debt is reasonable for the countries that are involved, that there is a low level of corruption, that there's high levels of transparency. If China wants to engage in belt-and-round activities of that sort, I think that could potentially be very positive, right? And I don't think we should necessarily be opposing those efforts, even if they're going to increase Chinese influence in parts of the world. Um, this, I, this was similar. I had a similar view on AIB, Right we have to accept that China is going to rise. It's going to take a more active role globally as it becomes more powerful. My view is, let's engage China in economic ways. If it's becoming more powerful, let's let it have a greater say in parts of the system institutionally. But let's make sure that we don't uh, undercut the core of the security relationships uh, or the core of the security institutions in the world. So, you know, I think uh, the decision by the United States not to speak up more firmly after the arbitral tribunal decision in 2016 was a big mistake. I think we should have really held China's feet to the fire on that issue.
1: Let's do a bit of a, a, a deeper dive into that one, Zach. So so why don't you lay out what the norm you're trying to uphold was, You know what the potential strategy should have been, and how uh, this idea of collective pressure uh, you would apply to uh, issues of— uh, Uh, territoriality.
0: Yeah. So I I think there are two issues here, and we Americans often only focus on the first one. So the the thing you'll often hear Americans talk about is the need to respect freedom of navigation and overflight. Uh, And um, I I think for good reason, that's what is most concerning to policymakers in Washington, because we want our ships and aircraft to be able to fly where international law allows. Now, the second norm, which in many ways is more important— is the ability of uh, coastal states in the South China Sea to actually use their exclusive economic zones for fishing, for resource extraction. And that second one is the one that the Chinese are violating most blatantly. And so my view is, if you're serious about engaging in collective balancing and trying to get allies and partners on side, you have to convince them that you don't only care about whether you can fly, sail, and operate in the South China Sea, You have to also care about whether your friends can use their exclusive economic zones to fish to do oil and gas extraction and we've done a lot of the former and not a lot of the latter and so i think part of the strategy i would be pursuing is making much more clear that one of the rules and norms that we think is important is that the Arbitral Tribunal said, uh, it put limits on where China's exclusive economic zone could be just based on what it called an actual feature that was entitled uh, to territorial sea and what's not. And that means that um, China can't actually claim exclusive economic zones throughout much of the South China Sea, which means that Malaysia and the Philippines can. And so those countries should be able to use those exclusive economic zones as they are legally permitted, and we should be standing up to help them do so if they ask for support. So this is interesting because I think I've had
1: past guests on this show that have said that, you know, at the end of the day, South China Sea, like, whatever, there's some oil in there, or maybe there's not. I mean, it's just this, like, weird pride thing and not worth... Um, uh, not not worth a big conflict. So so, or why do you keep this um, uh, this issue in the one that in in the ones you're um, uh, willing to make a real stand on, as opposed to putting it in the uh, kind of obor let let bygones be bygones camp?
0: Yeah, I think because for me, it's the core of having a way to show our friends that we care not just about ourselves but about them as well, and. And this has been, you know, one of the core questions is if you look at polling through, throughout Southeast Asia, it's not great at the moment for the United States. And one reason is that countries are thinking less and less about about uh, U.S. interests being intertwined with their interests. And so we've got to convince our friends that actually we care about the things that matter to them. And um, it's hard to do that when you have an America First strategy, uh, but we've got to try. And I think. Uh, This is one of those obvious issues where, you know, our policy in the South China Sea makes a lot of sense if you're just thinking about what America cares about. But if you're thinking about our friends, it doesn't go far enough. And, um, you know, there are issue sets in other areas like intellectual property theft and market access that I think are equally important. But just on the security side, this is the obvious one where I think we've done something that has been ineffective and where it's pretty obvious what the problem has been. Sure. So uh, briefly, you want to take up uh, uh, one more norm that you're willing to put the uh, collective pressure squeeze onto? Sure. I I think... Uh, as I just said, you know, intellectual property theft is a big one for me, right? The idea that states uh, are not—it's uh, not appropriate for states to be stealing technology from commercial actors and giving that technology to businesses to drive out businesses from other countries from key markets, that is— um, I think a broadly shared norm, it's not shared by everyone throughout the world, but I think it's a pretty smart norm to have. And frankly, if the US engaged in this kind of behavior, it would be incredibly destabilizing, right? And we don't do this. And I think it should be in our interest, the interest of Japan, Europe, many others, to actually have this norm be upheld. And clearly the Obama administration tried to do this in 2015. I think they had a little bit of success for a little bit. And then the Chinese went back to many of the activities that they'd been engaged in. But this is one where I think there's a broad coalition of friendly states that think intellectual property protections are important and that we should be upholding them. Um, And so, you know, again, this is an area where we can show our friends that it's not just about the United States. It's also about them as well. Sure. And, um, you know, what do you say to the argument that Alexander
1: Hamilton was was writing checks to folks who were stealing mill designs in the UK and China is still a poor country? You know, GDP per capita is like nine thousand dollars a year or something here. Uh, so, you know, this is this is just sort of a natural thing that happens uh, between uh, more and less developed countries.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's some truth to that, but that doesn't mean that we have to like it. Um, and, you know, th- this is where my, my answer is, okay, fine. If you want to be a business that is using uh, information that the PLA has given you from a private corporation to drive that company out of business, there's no reason the U.S. government has to let you sell products into the United States, right? What? Why would we let you do that? Um and so I think if companies want to engage in bad action, we should be punishing them. So in general, my, my big argument is, look, the Trump administration is engaged in a lot of broad-based activities where we need to go as much more targeted effects at the actors that we think are engaged in problematic activity.
1: Uh, so Zach, any any closing words? Maybe maybe thoughts on uh, what you know? Think tank style policy papers you wish you could read? What what topics you um, you know you'd give to uh, whatever like a PhD student if you had anyone?
0: Oh, that's a, that is a tough question. Um, I I think the the core thing is as long as we can use uh, the agreement that's growing in the United States around what our concerns are with China, to actually build that into a agreement about what we should be aiming for, we're going to be on the right path. But if this is simply a list of concerns we have about China without a real strategy, then we're going to be lost and not just lost in the short term, but lost in the long term. So I think the Trump administration has done some important work in raising issues that we find uh, concerning. But now the tough task will be transforming that into a strategy that can actually get broad based agreement. And we're just not there yet. Um, And I think that's where we need to go. Hal Brands and Zach Cooper, thanks for being a part of China Econ Talk. Thanks so much for having us.
1: China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Taishan Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week.
0: Yeah.
2: They say being a parent is a full-time job but I already have one of those Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code INGREDIENTS22.
0: Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.